Greetings and welcome to another edition of Doc's Talk, the official podcast of the King County Medical Society. I'm your host and producer, Josh Kearns. Surgical standards, tackling burnout, practicing medicine independently, and taming the onslaught of EMR disconnects across systems, they're all major issues facing every physician. And King County Medical Society board member, Dr. Ellen Derrick, is at the forefront of all of them. The esteemed vascular surgeon has dedicated her life to making a difference, and she's done just that throughout her medical career. I sat down with Dr. Derrick recently at her offices at Box Bar Vascular, the practice she founded in the U District, for a wide-ranging, thought-provoking, and sometimes enraging conversation about all of these areas, the hard-fought lessons she's learned, and what all physicians can take away from her experiences. I hope you find Dr. Derrick as compelling a figure in our profession as I do. Dr. Derek, first of all, it is so great to uh, visit with you and, and, and to share your diverse background, your, your diverse experience with the members of the King County Medical Society. So thanks for taking some time. You're welcome. Thank you for coming by. So I find you so fascinating because so many physicians focus on a singular area that becomes their life's work, whether it's oncology or something else. And yet you really have almost three very distinct tracks. You have your surgical path, but then you also have quality assurance. And then, because you only have four children and you have plenty of other things, <laughs> uh, you, you seem to have a moment when you're, you're not doing 100 other things. You're also very involved in widespread implementation of systems integration regarding Epic, one of the largest implementations in the country. So first and foremost, have you always had... Uh, undiagnosed, if not diagnosed, ADD. <laughs> My mom and dad would probably tell you yes. Um, I have, I think for as long as I can remember, uh, tried to do or been interested in many things. And my parents always supported that. And I had the opportunity in, for example, in high school, you know, to be an honor society member and a cheerleader and, you know, student council leader and governor of the Texas, Oklahoma Kiwanets and I went off to college and did a major in classical studies and uh, and pre-med. That's super random with a minor in dance. And, uh, you know, I, I just think I've always been interested in, um, I don't know, the many facets of things. Was medicine, though, was medicine always the, the first calling? Was that the underlying... Always. Uh, raison d'etre for you? Always. It was always medicine. So in my family, both my grandfathers are surgeons. And when I was little, I learned all about their life at the hospital and house calls. And they would share, you know, special cases or cases that moved them. And what moved me was their ability to be present with a person in their greatest hour of need and provide the technical expertise to navigate through that time but also they would reflect on the still moments where they held a patient's hand or they had a critical conversation. And I thought, gosh, when I grew up, wouldn't it be great if I had that opportunity to, I, I think, you know, look at death in the face. And if there is a technical way out to do my very best to get the patient out of it, but at the same time have that moment with them of comfort because you may be the very last person they ever see. Um, on the earth. And so that's what drew me into surgery. There was just no other path. <laughs> As a woman uh, going into surgery, 
did you feel at the time that the the world was your oyster, if you will, or did you did you see sort of those limitations that we know exist out in any business or any endeavor, just in life, but especially in one and surgery, especially so male dominated. Oh, that's such a good question. I will say that growing up, I saw no limitations. My dad was my best friend and my very first coach. And my dad always said, if you do the best you can, you can do anything you want in the world. And then I was really lucky to have two fantastic male chairmen in surgery, Ronnie Stewart, who's the chairman at the University of Texas, and Carlos Pellegrini, who's the chairman or old chairman at the University of Washington. And they both never, ever made me feel any different than a male resident. And they also made it clear that any future I wanted in surgery was whatever I wanted it to be. It wasn't until after I graduated that I realized the um, outside world didn't have, they didn't get the memo that, uh, <laughs> that women could just, um, without barrier, do whatever they wanted. I, it was after graduation and I, when I went into private practice, I learned that because I was a woman, it was different. Well, take me back your your medical training. Sure. Um, I, I know you you have multiple letters after your name. <laughs> there is not just MD. And so, in addition to you know, tell me about your medical training, but also the ancillary trainings that you have had. I know you you master's degree, I believe, or MBA from St. Andrews, and you you've gone to to a few institutions of higher learning. Well, yes, thank you. So my first <laughs> institution was SMU um, in Dallas, which I went on a scholarship and my mom went to SMU. So that was important to me to go to SMU. And that was a terrific experience. And then I sort of had two goals growing up. One was to study in Scotland, which is super random, and then to be a surgeon. So I, when I finished at SMU, I went to the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and I got a master's in Greek and Latin. And the question is why that? And in high school, I was in the IB program and we studied ancient literature. And I had another minor in classical studies from SMU. And anyways, I was fascinated with the archetype of human suffering and breaking down human suffering and understanding it. And the ancients and their literature do a very good job of explaining that. So I got the Greek and Latin. I went on to medical school. And then once I got out and was practicing very, I think the first year out of fellowship, I realized that there were a lot of things that needed to be improved in medicine. And the path to to be trained to improve those was a master's in public health. So I went back um, as a full-time working person um, and mother to get a master's in public health at UW. So ambitious in that, you know, when you're younger, and I assume that you, I don't know if you had debt or not at all after all of this schooling, <laughs> but uh, you're trying to forge your own career, and yet you, from a very early stage, and, and as I talked about in my introduction, you are very active, even I've known you for the last eight <laughs> months or so, with the King County Medical Society, with quality assurance, et cetera, et cetera. For you to be... Uh, so I don't want to say selfless, but it is a certain selflessness, but a willingness to look beyond your own advancement to a broader systemology, not something that you see in a lot of people. What's your deal? <laughs> What's my deal? I don't know. I always wanted to make the world a better place. And I don't know if that's grandiose or crazy. I remember asking my mom in high school, you know, in the kitchen on one of our nightly talks, I said, you know, mom, don't you want to make the world a better place and change it? And she said, no, not really, honey. And I said, well, doesn't everyone? And she said, no, not everyone wants to, but it's clear that I think you do. 
And I was maybe 17 at the time. And that has been a real true north for me to see where whatever situation, see what the problems are, and then see if there's anything I can do either personally or by getting a group of people together to make it better. So how did that manifest for you uh, professionally? Tell me about what you were actually doing, because I assume in in fellowship, you're, you're doing a surgical residency, and then you're now practicing as a surgeon. Right. Are, at the same time, are you like running up the street to, you know, the, the, the medical uh, MQAC or whatever and tell you need to change this, you're banging on their what did that actually look like for what was life like while also you mentioned parenting? It was so organic. I don't, I would say that I stumbled, I mean, it seems like I've always been uh, driven this way to look at the problem from multiple angles and try to make it better. But it was an accidental part of my surgical career. I, when I graduated from UW, I thought, oh, I'm just going to go into regular practice like everyone else. I'll train some residents and maybe write some great papers and give some talks and that's it. And I was maybe six months out of fellowship and I heard a man named David Flum talk at the Seattle Surgical Society about the need for surgeons to step up and define quality for surgery that that really hadn't been done before and we needed to define it because we needed to be accountable for it we needed to be able to tell our patients what it is we needed to be able to track it so we ourselves could know how we were doing and if we weren't doing great we could make it better and uh, i just i don't know i heard that call in the audience and i thought wow, this is really where we need to go as surgeons. And I've already seen this in my first six months of practice. You know, I'll just go see Dave, who's my old attending, and see if I can help him. So I called him up and made an appointment. I will never forget this. I sat on his sofa in his office, pregnant with my second child. And I said, you know, hey, Dave, I heard your talk, and I'm here to help. And he hmm. totally laughed at me, and he gave me an apple <laughs> and was like, okay, well, I'll be in touch. And, you know, it turns out, he later confessed that uh, no one else volunteered for the job. And so he and I, uh, he was the leader and I was his little protege. We got started on a project called Scope for the state of Washington. And, and that was it. I mean, it just scope, it just opened a lot of, it opened my eyes and um, to all the work that we needed to do. And what was that work? Tell me briefly for those sure. who aren't familiar, obviously your colleagues, uh, who, right. who are from, but but we we have lots of physicians sure. who don't practice sure. surgery or not not under that banner. Sure. So um, the traditional way of surgery up until movements like scope and NISQIP for the ACS, although scope was first, um, move up to then the quality of surgery was really based on perception. So as a surgeon, if I came out of the operating room and said, "Oh, it went great," the truth is the reality or the outcome of the surgery was what I said it was. But here I was as a new graduate seeing all this variation in patient outcome. But every surgeon was telling me they just did it perfect. And I thought, huh, how, you know, how can that be? If, if you just do it perfect every time, how come on one colon resection, the patient goes home easy? On another one, they leak. On another one, they kind of go home, but then come back with a complication. So how, where's the data? How do we make decisions? How do we understand what's going on? And at that time, there was no way to grade it or to understand it or even to connect a process that you do in the operating room with an outcome. That science was just beginning. And that is where uh, David and I did our work of tying process uh, to outcome for surgery so that you could say, 
a urinary tract infection was related to this. You could say a colon leak was related to this. And then once you track that, if you're getting more leaks or more UTIs than your colleagues, you could drill down in the data and say, well, what what went wrong? Was it a technical complication? Was it a system issue? Was it, you know, something else? But it would give you, identify something to change to make the surgery safer. And that was the beginning of SCOPE, the Surgical Care Outcome Assessment Program. And we saved like, I don't know, it was like $100 million of healthcare dollars our first two years. And then my specific contribution was to build something called VI Scope, which was vascular interventional scope, bringing together cardiology, interventional radiology, and vascular surgeons all to the same table to discuss endovascular work. And how much has it evolved from your the initial work that you did? When are we talking here? 20 years ago? Oh, yeah, probably... 2006, so 13, almost 13, 14 years ago. And how much has it evolved then oh. as, as the basis of your, you know, your foundational oh, work sure. then? I assume that it has continued it's to evolve. The so it's the standard now. Right. So back in those days, I was a real, um, I don't know, Cassandra, the Greek girl who saw the future, but no one believed her. Uh, you know, in those days, it was having the, you know, I would drive all over the state to different hospitals and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with physicians about the importance of euglycemia and surgical infection. Because I saw the data in the state of Washington, and it was very clear that if you don't collect, correct the glucose perioperatively, patients have more infections. And doctors, just surgeons just did not believe me, you know, even with the data right in front of them. And and I was young and, you and know. And a woman. And a and woman. I, I hate to have to go back to that, but I'm sure that that oh, bias had to have impacted the acceptance of you and the work itself. Right, and the, as the messenger. But, you know, I, I was able, I learned, I grew a lot and I learned a lot in those conversations. And what I finally took away from it is as a surgeon, and you, I think this is true if you're brand new or near retirement, if you are no longer willing to be open to improvement and change in practice to better the outcome of your patients, it's time to retire. I mean, it's, it's either time to do something else, time to, you know, go fishing, but it is, it is not time to care for patients because that is a very sacred trust. When you're a surgeon, you get one time to do it right. You don't get a do-over. It's not like working, you know, I always would dream about working at Starbucks. If I messed up your order, I could throw it out and start a new one. It's not like that in surgery. Uh, and so anyway, so now Scope is still thriving. It's um, still housed at the Foundation of Healthcare Quality. It has spawned other programs called, for example, Strong for Surgery, which the American College of Surgeons championed. It, is strong, it has sprung a comparative effectiveness health research network called the CERTAIN Network here in Washington State. Um, and outcomes in surgery now are totally standard. I mean, I don't, passe is not the word, but I think, um, you know, it's like utensils. You just, when you eat dinner, you use a knife and fork. When you practice surgery, you look at your outcomes. Well, and based on that, I would, you mentioned just the cost savings, the, sure. the millions of dollars. Uh, do you, though, are you able to look and see, I mean, specific the outcomes beyond the financial side of that, but simply, you know what, people are living longer. We're seeing fewer infections. Or maybe also eliminating unnecessary surgeries, for example. All of the above. All of the above. Uh, absolutely. Patients, you know, if you get, um, 
let's just say a an infection in your spine from in spinal hardware, um, the risk of death after that is very high. Uh, after that, after that, so when you start to look at wow, my infection rate for spinal surgery it costs a lot, and that's one thing. Payers like to look at the cost, and certainly the government likes to look at the cost of care. But when you're the patient, you know, receiving the care. Um, it, it may mean that you have a 50% chance of dying post-operatively if you get an infection. So that, that really matters. So changing the way as a surgeon that you deliver the care based on evidence, knowing where you stand to yourself and to your peers, I mean, that's priceless. That's totally, a, that's a game changer for everyone. And the other really special thing, and I want to shout out to the colorectal uh, group here in the state of Washington and Rick Billingham, who really led this, but colorectal surgeons took it a step further and they discussed how they test colon anastomosis. And this was new because surgeons never, you know, passed trade secrets to each other, but they felt comfortable enough as a community looking at this data and said, you know, John, you have fewer leaks than I do. And Jane, you have the fewest leaks. What do you guys do? And then those, the people with the low leaks said, well, I test the anastomosis after every, every time I sew bowel together. Then the other people at the table said, what do you mean you test an anastomosis? And they said, oh yeah, duh. You know, you, there's a way you can do it. And I do it after every case. And so what they realized is people who test anastomosis have a much, have a less, you know, greater than 50% reduction in leaks. So then you know what the community decided to do? That's the standard for colon surgery in the state of Washington. Everyone who does it has to test their anastomosis. And that is something that they document when they dictate. It's something that's recorded. It's, you know, it's a standard. So you mentioned the state of Washington becoming gold standards, but a lot of this work is becoming national, Yes, is becoming the gold standard for the practice of medicine. And tell me about your role with the American College of Surgeons, because you are in now a national position as well to help grow this culture of growth for lack of an eloquent way to put it. Oh, that's cool. That's exactly how I think of it. So the American College of Surgeons is the national the biggest group as a voice for surgeons and many surgeons, whether you're a general surgeon, a neurosurgeon, an ENT, really view the ACS as our voice for advocacy um, for patients, but also for ourselves. And so they're really at the cutting edge. And for some reason, I like to be at the cutting edge. And the work I'm currently doing for the ACS is based on physician well-being. And I'm the um, what, the head of the committee for physician well-being uh, for the Board of Governors for the American College of Surgeons. And what the charge of that committee is, is specifically looking at physician burnout, which 10 or 15 years ago when I started SCOPE, for example, that wasn't a hot topic. But here we are, you know, time has passed. And we lose uh, to suicide. We lose about one plane uh, crash a year of physicians. And why does that matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons. When, when I started looking at patient safety 15 years ago, the, the nation was outraged that we lost two airplanes of people with preventable death a year. But right now, we're losing one airplane of physicians a year. And um, 
You know, it's it's beyond critical. It's it's significant, and there, uh, the American College of Surgeons is projecting a shortage in surgeon, a shortage a shortage of surgeons by 2035. I think is the new number. Uh, surgeons will be at a critical level uh, in the United States. And then, why is that important? Because it takes anywhere from 10 to 15 years to make a surgeon who can operate independently. So it isn't just let's build more medical schools or let's build more surgical training programs, but the amount of accountability, responsibility that a surgeon has to bear takes a very long time to mature. Uh, and so we, we've, this is a critical issue. It is, it is a very hot topic and it's something that you know, we, we have to solve. Well, and I want to talk more about that because uh, this, I believe, is one of the fundamental um, critical reasons for being for the King County Medical Society, for the WSMA, for any um, organization that represents physicians at any level. Because I, as a layperson, especially, I was a reporter for years, covered health policy, but seeing it up close and personal, getting to know you and so many colleagues, your profession is under assault from a variety of uh, of places, whether and and we see that manifest, whether it is simply the dissatisfaction, the disgruntlement of the the physician who now has to see twenty one patients a day and chart at midnight, and they're not enjoying their work, and they're con that that quality of care even at the primary care level is being compromised because of that, all the way up to you mentioned mental health, suicide, et cetera. And yet I have seen the systematic solutions offered as, you know, meditate. If only you would meditate, Ellen, while I'm kicking you in the teeth, your life will be better and the problem is solved, which I think is a load of crap, frankly. And and I have made it my mission here in my role with the medical society to say, no, we need to do way more. Can we, whose who's role is it to do that? To me, it seems like until the physicians and patients and the public stand together and say, we must change this from med school all the way up through the insurers, the administrators, the shareholders of these systems are never going to change and the physicians will continue to burn out, to quit, to die. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I agree wholeheartedly on the mindfulness meditation um, discussion. Uh, you know, I think when you're dealing with a physician, by nature, you're dealing with an incredibly resilient individual. Surgeons my age worked well over 100 hours every week for 10 years to have the privilege of calling themselves a surgeon. I think people at my age gave up family, they gave up decades of their life, they gave up children, they gave up uh, really everything um, in order to learn to be good at their job so they could serve others. I think when you graduate and are become a successful surgeon, you've, you've exceeded and demonstrated incredible resilience. And that's, that's not the answer anymore. Um, and I think that's why these resilient strategies are failing. I don't think we have the perfect recipe yet, but there is a lot of work going on around burnout. I think physicians are beginning to raise their voice critically. There's a local surgeon here, Leonard Sue. He's also a vascular surgeon. He's spoken um, in medical schools across the country as well as in um, 
other organized uh, hospital systems most recently at Swedish about his journey with burnout. I think the AMA is getting behind this issue. I think the American College of Surgeons is getting behind this issue. And I think one of the big sticky wickets that I want to bring up um, that we talked about at our last um, leadership meeting in D.C. at the ACS was the the connection of mental health and burnout and the the extreme fear reported to me by my committee that physicians feel uh, seeking help when they are burnt out and depressed. They are terrified that the records would be discoverable. They are terrified that they will be fired. They will terrified that when they have to testify on their license renewal or any of their credentialing documents, if you have a mental illness or anything that could impact you, they are terrified um, to check it or to disclose that they themselves are getting help. And I asked them, is this the same that you feel about alcoholism or drug abuse? Oh, no, you can admit those things. That's very accepted. And, you know, there's a process to rehab the doctor, to get him back in, and we can all handle it. But there's not a process to deal with mental health. And I think that's what it breaks down to. And Leonard Sue, who is very candid, he's writing a book, and he's very candid about his own um, his own journey with this, his message is in healthcare, physicians need to get to a point, medicine needs to get to a point from medical student to practicing physician that your own personal mental health can be discussed like your hemoglobin A1C. It needs to be like, yeah, how's your diabetes going? Oh, I'm taking my insulin. It's cool. Hey, how's your uh, mental health going? Oh, it's cool. You know, I started a new medicine. I'm in therapy. It's totally treated. I'm doing great. Or, hey, I'm really struggling, so I've upped my, you know, I've upped my my medicine, and I'm seeing the therapist more, and I'm in a support group, and, you know, and I've reduced my patient load because I need to, you know, I need to do the right thing for patients, but I also have to take care of myself. Um, you know, I think until we get as a culture, and that's going to take everyone to accept this, the, the physicians being willing to engage, I think government and regulators and payers need to create a safe haven for disclosure and a pathway for therapy. And I think patients need to stand up and say, you know, all this time they have sacrificed for us. We now have to stand with them. They have to take care of themselves because if they don't take care of themselves, there will be nobody to take care of me but i i'm sorry it's so long no i but i want to take that one step further which is why should it be on you to seek help from a system that is screwed up that is causing so much of this of burnout of mental uh you know duress of trauma i mean at some point (laughs) don't we need to and i don't this is me on my soapbox and as the person who does policy you know who helps participate in policy with our ceo nancy belcher I look at this and I say, wait a minute, that's all fine and good, but shouldn't we, again, if I keep punching you in the nose, it's not about a better Band-Aid. It's about at some point stopping the punching of the nose. And I believe that we have to all come to, to, to band together with physicians and again, the public, policymakers, so that maybe we reduce the amount of times I am smashing you in the face and you don't have to, okay, now I can talk about my broken nose. Well, great, but maybe if I stop breaking your nose, <laughs> Uh, things would be better collectively. And that's where I would like to see us go. And I don't know, I believe that King County Medical Society uh, has uh, is a perfect one of many venues around the country, but we are so unique as the largest organization of physicians. And we have, I mean, there are over 12,000 practicing physicians in King County alone. We have the ability, 
we have the relationships the influence if we can marshal that and this is sort of my clarion call sure. to arms and it's what I am what I find so true I just hate hearing you have to say we have to make it okay to talk about the fact that we're getting punched in the face every day okay great but let's stop getting stop let's, the abuse. let's stop the abuse let's let's address the abusers not the abused wow so I I mean I love hearing that and I I just I, I've all, I've lost faith. I mean, I I think I've lost, I have lost my faith in the system's ability. And to, you're not alone to address this. Um, you know, when if uh, if a, someone if a patient, for example, said my glucose is out of control and my sugars are 500 every day, and I said to them, you know, I'm not going to give you insulin, but I'm going to recommend that you meditate. And when you get to your amputation for this, I'm going to also meditate with you. You know, that's where we are, right? That That's where we are. The physician is coming forward and saying, I'm committing suicide. I'm quitting. I, I met a sugar of 500. The amputation actually has happened and the surgeon didn't close the wound. I'm still bleeding. There's been no prosthetic offered, right? And the system says back, I want you to do some mindfulness training. And we're going to sponsor that on a brown bag lunch. And you're going to come to lunch with your bleeding, <laughs> cut off leg without any support. And by the way, still no insulin. So maybe we can go above the knee next time because the below the knee is not going to heal. Um, that's the message that we have repeatedly received. And and I'm now, as a, as a physician and as a person in this cohort that is committing suicide, to me, this is, these are people I know. These are just like my patients. It brings me to tears. It, you know, it, the system has totally failed us. You know, I don't, I don't, I just, I don't know. And you're actually still part of, I mean, first of all, you were the one who was going to change the world. Right. And you were the one who was still participating at various levels. Yeah. So if you say you've, you know, I've, I've given, given up. up. Sadly, that is the consensus that I hear yeah. uh, collectively from your and when I read all the national trades yeah. and everything. But I will say that there is this is going to sound like such a recruitment. I, <laughs> I feel like I'm a recruiter for some, you know, for the union or something. And I, we won't even get into that part of that. I know some there are people who believe in that, but I do believe and I hope that you will be a part. There are a number of physicians that have reached out to us individually that I've started to try and we've started to try to put together to bring together to to begin to build a bigger voice and hopefully we can i mean we could beat this you right. know it's gotta i and, mean it's just it's not so you know there's this mounting dialogue in the media about the cost of healthcare, right and and it's critical and we we've got to make a shift but i i think there is an equally important valuable cry which is Doctors are killing themselves, and we have to we have to fix that too. Because even if we give healthcare for free, if we don't have anyone to deliver it, we still have no healthcare. Well, yeah, and if you have three minutes to see your patient, what kind of care will you provide? It's none. It's none. But you know, the good news is is <laughs> the the number of administrators in systems continues to grow exponentially, right. while the right. number of physicians right. declines. Because we can just add clipboards and checklists, and it's going to make it gonna make it okay but it's gonna be a really good lunch at the brown bag yeah really good i'm just maybe they'll give me dessert you know <laughs> it won't just be white bread right you're, you're, and, and there will be great sugar free <laughs> well so we're gonna continue that conversation and i 
I, I know that you will be a part of that, and we have others, and I will merely, the people listening to this, come and join us as and, and look for these areas where you can participate in that, whether it is, as you have done in the last year, as a delegate to the WSMA, and we're taking that one step further and advancing our own legislative agendas where it doesn't make sense to do it with a larger organization that maybe is not as nimble as us, etc. Moving forward, the good stuff. And one of the big things, I am here at your beautiful office at Box Bar Vascular, which you walk in the door and it looks like a spa and it is so warm and and welcoming and inviting. And your practice, you are known for your your joy, your empathy, your compassion. And so I don't see somebody who has given up. Uh, and, and so talk about, though, that transition from being in the system. Were you Providence, Swedish, both? I forget what your, I could look at your CV, yeah, no but it's worries. too long. Yeah, no worries. It's Providence. Yeah, and so you did that and then made the decision, you know what, despite this, I mean, I would guess that, that most odds say, do not go into private practice because right. that's stupid. Because you cannot make a living in private, right? And they're going to kill you. But any, what, what drove you to, or, or uh, incented you to go into private practice? And what has that experience been like? Well, sure. Well, thanks. So a couple things. I think, actually, a part of my giving up on the system uh, led me to private practice. Because I, I realized working for change within uh, was just not, the change isn't happening fast enough. And you get the proverbial, we're listening and the pat on the head, but then nothing changes. And so, you know, honestly, going into private practice allows me to deliver the care the way that I want care delivered to me. And I have been a rural patient before. Um, and so I, I do feel like I, you know, have had life-threatening illness with surgery and life-threatening complications. And I uh, certainly am acquainted with that other side. And so having my own practice allows me to deliver that. But it also allows me the, the bandwidth or the free time to, to work for change. And I think right now that change is, is without the system. It's outside of the system. And it's working for change, for example, by volunteering in my medical community, the King County Medical Society, volunteering for the American College of Surgeons, volunteering for the Society of Vascular Surgeons. I think also my work in EPIC um, for the actually the Providence St. Joseph Health System. It's a huge system. And this EPIC implementation that we're doing right now, which is the biggest in the history of EPIC, um, I think those are ways that I'm working on the change. But it isn't just unloading the trucks at the syst- as a system physician. Um, you have to carve out time to do the work for change. And my experience is when you're employed in a system, that time is, no one values that time. That many of administrators to do it, your colleagues don't value it because they're so swamped trying to unload the trucks. But I value it because if nobody stops and takes time and says we have to work for change and that takes time both to develop the programs and time for the change to happen, it will never happen. Like it would just, it can't be. Well, and that's why I think it's so important that we build community. And we've sort of set that. I was just talking today to our CEO, Nancy Belcher, yeah. about, you know, real. it, it just it, it keeps sort of hitting me in the head. It's like, you know, that's really one of the, the key values that we can provide is being a catalyst, a nucleus for reinvigorating community because we see what has happened with the ever-growing, um, the 
seeing the systems sort of eat up the individuals right. uh, we've lost that sense of community Absolutely. and collegiality Absolutely. and we're going to do that through at, at the most um you know pedantic level of, of baseball game things just together where you actually get yeah. together with people you like that yeah. you can actually talk about yeah. you know uh what whether it is bleeding colons or whatever but, but that's actually <laughs> enjoyable for you know if that's your but seriously to to begin to rebuild reconnect people and i think that can look as little as a social get together a mixer things like that getting to know you you getting to know others because and i'd love to see and one of the things we're trying to do through the society is for example serve as a referral service so that when people need a vascular surgeon They don't just, they're not so burned uh, and, and so busy. They just merely, okay, via, you know, I'm at, at Swedish, I'm at VM, I'm right. at Polyclinic. I, I just point my finger, you know, right. spin the at wheel. At the fax machine. <laughs> yeah, but, but actually that we build these communities so that physicians get to know you. Yes. And they know that when I need a vascular surgeon, I want it to be somebody right. who sh- has the passion, the light that, that Dr. Ellen Derrick at Box Bar Vascular has. So hopefully we are starting to do some of that as well. Well, thanks. And I think you touch on something really important, which is when you bring the face-to-face back to the practice of medicine, whether it's face-to-face time with the patient, more than five minutes, or face-to-face with a referring doctor or primary care, I think that's when you create the community. And one thing I know for sure is when you have a community, you have a fabric. And a fabric is strong enough to handle the ups and the downs and the failures and the successes of taking care of people. A single rope by itself is will just fail. You really have to have a community together to be successful in the care of the patient and the care of each other. One of our mottos as we wrap this conversation up um, is bringing the joy back to medicine. Do you still? F- I mean, for all of for all of the just the crap that you guys have to deal with, you still get to find that joy in medicine? I assume it's every day oh, when you have a patient, right? It is, and I do. I abs- you know, I was just thinking, I was reflecting back to write a thank you letter to all my patients because they give me as much joy in my life as I hope that I bring them. And, uh, you know, they're just amazing. And they truly, this sounds so corny, but they inspire me every day to deliver my best to them. And so I find that in private practice, my joy has returned. And um, I really love what I do. And I'm really thankful that I have the opportunity to do it. Dr. Ellen Derrick, (laughs) vascular surgeon, and many other endeavors box bar vascular here in the U district. I guess we can call this the U district. We're close enough. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing and your time and participating. And I hope that this will help connect others, uh, bring them together, inspire them, and also bring them into our fold at the King County Medical Society to get more involved. Well, thanks. The King County Medical Society is a wonderful place. And it's actually the first place I've found in Seattle where I can talk to other doctors and meet them. And that's been really inspiring as well. So thanks. And that's going to do it for this edition of Doc's Talk, the official podcast of the King County Medical Society. I'm Josh Kearns. If you have a suggestion for an upcoming episode or would like to participate in one, just drop me a line, jkearns at kcmsociety.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk with you again soon on the next episode of Doc's Talk. Doc's Talk.